J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. I'm Rachel. I am obsessed with classic cinema, lost movies, silent film, and international cinema, and I am deep into the Oscars right now. Who's with me? James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer to Say podcast. Uh, my main expertise is no-budget film, and yeah, I'm attempting my annual Oscar speed run because I never see anything during the year, and yeah, I've so far, all I have is 32 features left out of the 54 noms, and I only started Friday. I believe in you, James. Not bad. Hello, uh, my name is Andreas. I am the uh, creator and uh, chief, editor-in-chief of Film Fatale. I also write for them. Uh, I, I I am obsessed, a little bit too obsessed, unhealthily with art house and uh, international cinema, uh, much to the uh, detriment of all my loved ones. Um but we also like the Academy Awards. And uh, before we get into our cinematic smorgasbord, uh, Rachel, do you think we should do a bit of a bit of a segue before we get into, or like a bit of an introduction before we head into that? A little recap, I think. Yeah. So the Oscar nominations just came out. And in case you're new to the K-Cut, first off, welcome. Um, we'll get into all of the spiel of the cinematic smorgasbord when it comes to the K-Cut. But first off, we also do a huge, thorough run-through of every single nominee. Uh, things are going to be a little bit different this year. Um, we're going to focus on just the stuff that we like or we think is going to win. But we're still studying every single Academy Award nominee, particularly uh, this year's 95th Academy Award nominees. So... Um, yeah, what say you? Shall we give like a bit of a response as to what we thought happened, what was good, what was not so good? Okay, what is going on with decision to leave? I uh, I don't know, but that was a poor decision. Uh, mm -hmm. Let, let's easily, talk about a couple of snubs. Well, that was easily the biggest one, and mm -hmm. um, I feel like it was flat out one of the best films of the year. I was actually leading in the leading in the other direction, where I thought it was going to get maybe like Drive My Car did the year before, like an international best director nom for uh, Park Chan-woo, um, maybe a Shot in the Dark best supporting actress nom or for writing. It got nothing, never mind that. And it was originally the front runner for best international feature film. Until the nominations were announced, I thought for sure it was going to win. And I'm yeah, very upset about that because I've seen all the international noms. I would argue that the decision to leave is better than all of them, even though they are all quite strong. Well, the Oscars don't always get it right. Uh, James, do you have any snubs or ones that you want to root for? Um, you know, I don't know. I still have to get through a bunch of the features. <laughs> I think uh, it's funny because I mainly do this, like, I do the Oscars Death Race for Spore. I actually despise award shows for the most part these days. Yeah. And, and actually, like you mentioned, for snub snubs is one reason, but it seems like it's only seems to, it's only function these days is to highlight films that, uh, don't get the theatrical runs of all the massive IP. So it's like, oh, here's a moment for like other types of cinema to actually get some sort of praise that isn't just box office related. Exactly. Though I'm just, I, I don't, I'm curious to see how Avatar does. I think it'll pick up one or two. Um, I've not seen it yet. I'm going this weekend, but we'll find out. I have 12 movies to go. Um, and another conversation is, I am not sure what is going on with Best Actress, um, with Andrea Riseborough, and with both um, Deadweiler and Davis getting snubbed. It just seems very strange there, but I guess we'll go into that more, but that is a very weird category. 
Um, I, we will get more into that when we discuss that category. All I will say right now is do not blame Andrea Riseborough. She fully deserves to be there. No, she's really great. And it's always hard because there's always too many performances. Right. Uh, having said that, Philo Davis was excellent. Danielle Deadweiler being snubbed is like also in the top snubs of the entire uh, list. I think it's just completely unfathomable. But uh, we'll get into all of that later. Yeah. But To round it off, just today, who do you think is going to win Best Picture? Only Best Picture. For me, I always have a bit of a window, especially since they've expanded it to up to 10, or now it's like fully 10 nominees. Right now, I think the best odds, and I will narrow it down because I don't like being cheap either. The best odds are Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and The Fablemans. But right now, because I like to think that the BAFTAs usually skew skew favor a lot of the time, I'm going to maybe change my mind but right now go with banshees to me it's between banshees and everything everywhere and banshees has a slight edge but i couldn't really articulate why exactly like it's like not not certain like this is so neck to neck and neck right now oh i just thought of something another thought i actually did have in an opinion about Uh-oh. the oscars okay <laughs> i think it is absolute nonsense that marcel the show with shoes on got nominated easily for animated but richard linklater got denied at first even though apollo 10 and a half is actually fully animated in comparison yeah and then he made the short list and then he didn't get in in the end i think marcel was also having similar issues until they gave the go-ahead for both but uh, as we saw one what the distance of one didn't unfortunately and uh, apollo 10 and a half is actually quite good i would argue None of the animated features are bad, but I could think of a couple that Ten and a Half would have maybe had a preferable spot over. Like the Sea Beast? Sea Beast was was good, but it's a family film that's close to two hours. That's a little silly. And it's not in the same way that Pinocchio is, where I felt kind of captivated the whole time. Sea Beast is beautifully animated, but it did not need to be that long. (laughs) Yeah, so that's kind of our Oscar takes for now. Um, Shall we move on to our real purpose here? Yeah, so as you could tell, we've given our um, our own personal tastes when it comes to what styles or genres or movements of cinema that we prefer. Uh, we even gave you a little bit of uh, previous to what our Oscar roundtable is going to, or Oscar triangle, I don't know, triangle sadness, probably triangle sadness. We're going to be devastated throughout these whole entire Oscars, pun intended. Um, but basically the point is we don't always see eye to eye when it comes to films, and uh, at the same time, we're also very open-minded. So what we like to do every month is a cinematic smorgasbord where we take our different tastes, try to figure out a film for our fellow co-hosts that they might like, um, and we see what the results are. Furthermore, the second part of the episode, we go into a film that we go and watch a film that none of us have seen before. And uh, it's kind of like a book club sort of thing. Uh, so in the second part of this episode, uh, we watched <laughs> the, uh, and you know, typically people say you don't want to miss it, but this you don't want to miss. Uh, Peter Greenway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which is uh, singular to say the least. I'm not going to say a single thing more. Please, no one say anything else. Let's keep all of our re- all of our responses for the second part of the episode, because this is one of the wildest films I think ever made. And you again, you do not want to miss it. Uh, additionally, you don't want to miss our individual picks as well. So who wants to start off with what film they were assigned, who gave it to them, and how it was? I'll go first. Okay, what were you assigned, and who 
bestowed this film upon you, and what did you think? Well, you have a poor short-term memory because you bestowed it upon me, and that was Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror, ah, which is kind of a... Sorry, go ahead. No, I just said, how could I forget? Yes. So this is kind of a journey through memory and the author's own experience and a little bit of stealth history lesson on Russia. And so you're going through different timelines, and it's kind of dreamlike, and it sometimes departs from reality. But what I found was how grounded this film was, very realistic, very deep, even when it was kind of deviating from the norm. Um, I think it is very autobiographical, although I didn't do too much research in that regard. I don't know, it was a really good pick and very thought-provoking. And the cinematography was gorgeous. Actually, you know, you bring up it being autobiographical, and it is to an extent. Um, Tarkovsky based it heavily on his father, who, it, you know, was a poet, uh, went, like as, as a profession. I'm not sure if he was practicing when Mirror came out, because he died quite a bit later, I think. But his, his father was like a renowned Russian poet, and it was almost as if he was trying to capture the thoughts of like a dying mind, Um when like I actually the part that I don't know is if his father's mind was actually going as well uh, because you know there, it's hard to say that there's a story in mirror it's one of the most abstract films I think the mainstream public has ever seen I'm sure there's like underground stuff that's a little bit more challenging but uh, this is like in terms of what people can accessibly watch um, one of the most challenging films maybe ever made uh, it kind of is the fragmented pieces of somebody like a, like an artist's dying mind to tell their story through somebody else's lens. And it's kind of hobbled together. So you can't tell what the bigger picture is, but at the same time, each individual little segment is just breathtaking. And it takes you time to kind of figure it out. Um, I, I get what you're saying. It really is kind of a portrait of the mind. Um, eat your heart out inside out, but <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're really going on a journey through this man's life, but you don't ever quite know where you stand. But I personally enjoyed all the historical bits because um, I lived in Russia, I've spent time there, and I just found it terribly interesting. Right, and that's a part that, like, my gravitation towards this film is because I love experimentation when it's done really well, and I feel like this is one of the most impressionable films I've ever seen. Um, Tarkovsky is actually most likely in my top 10 favorite filmmakers of all time. I've seen every film of his, every single one of his films made one of my decades lists. Like I just adore his stuff. And this might, yeah, that says a lot. This might be one of my, like, this might be his best film. I'm not sure. It's a really tough call to make, but, um, I would also argue it's his most challenging, but the parts that I gravitate towards are like, you know, how he's piecing together the film in such an interesting way. But to your, you know, to, you know, in your perspective, I think you would love a lot of his stuff because of how he shoots Russia, you know, historically or in a modern lens. I think so. I found the film kind of oddly meditative in a way. His works are like that now, not to, you know, scare you away. Mirror is actually one of his shorter films. I believe Solaris is three hours. Stalker is for sure three hours. Um, Andrei Rublev is close to three hours, I think. His stuff is usually pretty long, but it's, again, meditative, meditative is the right word because it kind of like lulls you into a hypnotic state. But I feel like Mirror does it in a more 
kind of like a nirvana, like reaching the sort of upper echelon of consciousness sort of way. Yeah, no, I found it was a really good pick and very suitable to me. So good job. Uh, well, that, that sounds good. Are you inclined to, even though the run times are daunting, are you inclined to watch more uh, by Tarkovsky? If I ever find the time, yes. <laughs> well, um, you know who to ask. I, I, I've i seen all of his films multiple times, and uh, some of his films you need to be in the right mood. Like Stalker is very cynical, uh, but a lot of people think that is his best, so I don't know. Fair enough. Either way, I'm happy you've discovered uh, a new filmmaker because he is truly like one of my all-time favorites. Well, I can see why he is. I, I just think this was stellar. Fantastic. What did... Uh, yeah, what did you assign James in comparison? James, what did I assign you? Ah, uh, yes. You assigned me the film M by Fritz Lang. And what did you think? I thought it was pretty good. I, you know, I often say this in regards to my own personal journey in cinema. You know, I, I don't really have a passion for films that are that far back, but I watch them because it helps me understand film moving forward. And this is, this is one of like the definitive films that's a classic example of, you know, the hunt, like, it's the hunt for a serial killer. Right. And I think it was one of the very early examples of the type. But it also, um, it also does the fun narrative of, you know, regular people taking matters into their own hands is where the law is falling short. Regular criminals, even. Yeah, re- yeah, even the mob is trying to find this person. But which it makes sense, though, because like even like the gangsters had a code. This, you know, is if you don't know the movie, it's a searcher for a killer, a serial killer who's killing like children. Mm-hmm. And so even like the actual like the diehard criminals are like, nah, we got to find this guy. Yeah. And Peter Lorre plays the criminal. And of course, you saw him in Casablanca. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. He was the guy that uh, got the letters of transit that Rick was constantly trying to pass off. Oh, right. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, I I, I like the pacing. I thought it was an interesting choice for it to be completely devoid of music and sound in general in some areas but i thought that kind of helped it helped flesh out the tension of the story yeah i gotta say great ending though oh yeah yeah it's one of those films where it's like you see it replicated not like intentionally ripped off but you see this kind of narrative replicated throughout history especially in just general neo-noir but a film recently that i think takes uh, takes on this kind of story that i think does really well is uh denis Villeneuve's prisoners okay i haven't seen it so explain well, so there is a basically there is uh I think who's the character? Hugh Jackman's character, I think it's his daughter who's kidnapped. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly. I think so. And um there's kind of like this weird dude in the neighborhood and they suspect it's him, but all along he's dropping hints sparsely that he's involved somehow. So you know, the law's only doing so much. And, you know, the the main detective is played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And he's trying to figure out the case. But, you know, Hugh Jackson's character, along with other, like, parents, he ends up kidnapping him and holds him and tortures him to find out the information. And just the way, just the, way the story goes is really interesting. Interesting. I wonder how much M inspired it. Yeah, I, I got I to gotta think that that's one of the films that he pointed to when when he was making it but you know he's he's honestly proven to be a master filmmaker it's it's it was one of the many in his like non-stop run in like the mid to late 2010s because he was literally dropping a great film every single year for like five years 
The other thing was its use of sound, because I know you mentioned it was a little creaky, but it really did have some really strong advances in the field of sound. Yeah, well, I also thought there was a great choice in um, how the killer is kind of discovered is a blind person recognizes a a tune that he whistles that he heard when one of the girls goes missing. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. I was like, oh, that's also a cool part of the story. It's like the blind guy, he can't see him, but he gets a hold of somebody. He's like, hey, follow that guy. Yeah, and I will tell you from experience, if you ever whistle that uh, song in a room full of film fans, they'll freak out instantly. It's like a PTSD almost. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's just something about the way Peter Lorre whistles yeah. it too. Oh my goodness. But And sadly, the images of him from that film were used in Nazi propaganda because uh, Peter Lorre was Jewish. So they used it against him and against Jewish people in general, oh. which is a very tragic legacy that this film does not deserve and Peter Lorre did not deserve. I did not even know. Jeez. Again, our historian, ladies and gentlemen, um, Rachel here with all all the deets on that. Oh my, I did not even know that. That's disgusting. Wow. That's so sad. Um, I love that you brought up the sound, though, because I think it's one of the best examples of... Uh, the transition from silent to talkies, especially because it's Fritz Lang who directed, in my opinion, the greatest silent film of all time. And I mean, it's kind of really on the nose to say that Metropolis is the greatest silent film of all time. It's not exactly uh, a sole opinion here, but um, you'll see what he did leading into the sound era and how he made that motif with the whistle, for instance, and toyed with the silence because he couldn't really record a lot of sound or capture a and lot, the but he used when that to it. Somebody's his- injured. Exactly. He he uses it to his advantage to make it creepy. Like their silence is deafening. And I mean, Fritz Lang is one of the goats. So yeah, and early talkies are always kind of weird that way. They are, but again, Fritz Lang is just so so good at almost every single film he's ever attempted. Like of the ones that I've seen, I've seen quite a few at this point. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's goaded at this point. He's one of the greats. So James, what do you think overall? I thought it was good. I I think it was it was an entertaining film. I think because mm-hmm. it, it works in both ways for me. It's like I find it very entertaining for the kind of stuff I like, but it's like from an educational standpoint, it's very fascinating because this film's from 1931. And it kind of reminds me like especially with being new to sound, it's like you kind of just sort of do what is interesting as opposed to what is correct. It's like the early days of stereo recording, like a lot of early stereo albums sound bizarre because they were do it was it was so fresh they're like what can we do with it before they figured out like oh, okay this is like the practical way that's why everything kind of s- seems really weird when new technology comes out yeah that bridging era from uh silent to talkies is always very interesting to me uh to your point i've seen some really bad examples uh <laughs> one that i always point out is broadway melody where you can like literally um which was a best picture winner, by the way, <laughs> oddly enough. Uh, you can actually like hear that they're trying to say stuff, but like because there's like dancing and clapping on top of it, you can't even hear what the guy's trying to say, and it's probably not important dialogue, but case in point, like they just did not know what they were doing with sound. Yeah, it's got a thumbs up for me. Are you gonna watch any more Fritz Lang? I mean, I plan to when I have the time. I mean, we gotta not... see Metropolis. That that's if you can only watch one more, watch that one. Yeah, that's always been on my list, though. I just haven't gotten around. And uh, to that point, a lot of his other films, I believe, like the Dr. Mabuse series, like, am I not mistaken? It's like o- like over three hours, like well over three hours, if I'm not mistaken. Like, uh, it got to a point where a lot of silent films would just not stop. Like, I've seen some seven-hour ones. Like, they just would not stop. Uh, so, you want to talk about time. Uh, yeah. 
stick with Metropolis, which I believe the cut that's going around now is like 245. So it's still pretty long, but it's not over three, I guess. But on the other side of the fence, there is a very short duration for a feature film that you can have, which is uh, an hour and a half, roughly. And not with a big budget like Metropolis, which at for its time was like the greatest produced film of all time, like the highest budget. You could get away with something a little bit more shoestring, um, like let's say 15000 uh, what I'm what I'm getting at here is uh, James's affinity for shoestring budget films. And um, what did you assign me, James? Uh, yes, I assigned you the debut feature of Barry Jenkins, Medicine for Melancholy. So now I've seen every single film of his, and um, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And what I felt about this was this felt like so many other James picks where it's like, you could tell that it's like on a cheaper camera, small cast, minimal story. Um, they just all have this, there's indie films. And then there's like the indie films that like you really like tether yourself to. And it, it, it felt like a James pick, like, a, like a, like what was that film? George Washington. Yes. Yeah. Like uh, that. David Gordon Green flick. Exactly. Um, this one, however, and speaking of ghosts, like I feel like we've talked about Tarkovsky, we've, t- we've talked about Lang, two of the greatest of all time. I feel like Barry Jenkins for our time should be in that conversation, and it shows. So, like when he does a film like this, uh, let me tell you, like I was like glued from the start. I just, I do think it's his worst film, and that's because it's Barry Jenkins. Like what he's done since is like just monumental. Um, this is still, I would consider, a really good indie film. And all that it is is a 24-hour span between um, two locals of the area. I think it's San Francisco. Um, one, yeah, one girl's in a relationship, but her boyfriend's out in London. And one guy is very into her. She's not necessarily into him, but they play ball. And it's basically how their relationship blossoms over this 24-hour period where um, they do start to care a little bit more for one another they start to even core a little bit because they know that this isn't necessarily right. It even gets a little bit political when it comes to their conflicting viewpoints on certain things like music or the, the local cultural scene. And or also race because uh, her boyfriend is actually white. Exactly. So like the idea of the interracial uh, relationship as well and how even that's a little bit skewed where it's not authentically interracial. It's more or less somebody who's Caucasian who's dating somebody who's uh, considered a minority in the United States. Like there's so many, um, so many interesting conversations being had here, whether they're in agreement or they're not. And in that particular conversation, they were actually quarreling, like they weren't seeing eye to eye. And I just overall just was like, so hypnotized by it. That's good. Yeah. I, the main reason I like these kinds of films is I think no budget filmmaking is probably the most honest form of filmmaking. When you don't have money to solve all your problems, you literally have nothing but your creativity at your disposal. I mean, the budget may be small, but the ideas put forth are bigger than even some of the most massive blockbusters. Yeah. And like, I see what you're saying because I've seen a lot of low budget films and they don't have to be shoestring, but still like that or, um, slightly bigger budget, but still not enough to like really work with. I've seen a lot of filmmakers like kind of 
kind of slip and like mishandle what they could have had. And it's tough because there's no room for error. There's no room to breathe. But then when you have something like this, again, it's not his best film because he was granted the proper budget later on. But um, still with what he could work with here. And it's not just the Barry Jenkins show. I have to, have to, have to shout out uh, cinematographer James Laxton, who has worked with Jenkins ever since. And we've seen what we what he's done with Moonlight and Beale Street. Um, but even here with like a cheaper camera, the, the fact that the majority of the film is like a almost black and white, but it's a like kind of muted color. But there's like one part where the color kind of richens a little bit and kind of feels like sepia or muted color but like there's a little bit of life in it because they're kind of bonding a lot more i think it's like during the carousel scene um yeah they they did that intentionally kind of highlight and i think they try to do it throughout the film if they can where it's like the tint is different depending on the mood yeah it's just so well done and even with like again like a cheaper camera you could tell that this guy just knows how to shoot and case in point again he did moonlight which is one of the best looking films of all time um he did the underground railroad which is one of the greatest looking series of all time and i know that they're both barry jenkins as well but he's he's worked with a lot of other um big name filmmakers since like kevin smith after the fact um just what a great portfolio for him to kick off with it's also important to note that despite how good this film is it didn't open any doors for him because the gap between this and Moonlight was eight years. And part of that I do know is not just because Moonlight was difficult to get off the ground. It's also, if I'm not mistaken, because I've actually, uh, I attended the Canadian premiere of Beale Street of Talk. um, And I think during that he explained the film he wanted to follow up with was Beale Street. It wasn't Moonlight, but he got stuck with Beale Street and was like, okay, I'm going to work on something else right now because I don't really know how to take this further, how to adapt the James Baldwin source as much as, as effectively as I want to. I feel like I need a film in between that's authentically my own that I can explore more and get more comfortable as a filmmaker. And he made Moonlight. Well, it's also the fact that he literally just wasn't getting offered any work. That's true, too. Uh, absolutely. That's yeah, like, in, re- in regards to, yeah, he wanted to do Beale Street, and then he did Moonlight before that. But yeah, the part of it was just, this film, di- he wasn't getting offered anything, which is mind-blowing, because it's such a good debut that, how, how do you not pick this guy up? Well, he's had the last laugh. <laughs> well, I guess he is, because he's making the, the Lion King prequel, which I'm still not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> Actually, it's really interesting. Um, if anybody ever has a time, everybody should watch the um, speech that Steven Soderbergh gives called um, The State of Cinema. And he actually mentions uh, Barry Jenkins uh, because he he's talking about in regards to like how how we should change the industry and like giving creators more control. And he specifically mentions the name. He, spe- he mentions um, Barry Jenkins, Amy Simons and Shane Carruth mm. because one, he was a big he was a big fan of Upstream Color. Obviously, Mr. Carruth is no more because of accusations and an arrest so he's probably gone yeah uh, amy simons has had a steady career amy simons was actually an associate producer on medicine for melancholy yes i saw uh but yeah so it's like when you champion creative filmmakers you can get really good results i mean we're seeing honestly i think the auteurs of art uh, of this time are exceeding i think are really exceeding the expectations that 
people probably had for cinema moving forward. I mean, we have so many people that are just like, I mean, besides Barry Jenkins, you have Jordan Peele, you have Alex Garland, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, like people who are just making just some of the finest art and also getting a lot more praise and recognition than somebody maybe making these films 10 years ago would get. And there are people right now that we'll know about in 20 years that are just as good. It's so tough to pick out like who's going to be like that next wave, especially when you would think that a lot of people who would do well for like their short films uh, might go on to do like bigger, better things that we have like a few, like um, I take a YTT is one is one example. Um, I just have to look up this. Why am I forgetting her name? Uh, oh, also shout out the Safety brothers. Yeah, they're making some good films too. Absolutely. Uh, the other name I was thinking of was uh, Andrew Arnold, whose Wasp short, or sorry, whose short Wasp was uh, like huge when it first came out, and she's been making stuff as well. I believe uh, Fish Tank is hers. So, um, you just never know. But that's not a telltale sign because we've seen enough people who do well with shorts or people who do really well with uh, their first their first feature, whether it's indie or like kind of indie. Like, I'm thinking of uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, what's that director's name again? Ben Zeitlin. Thank you. Yeah, with Ben Zeitlin. Like, unfortunately, his career did not really blossom as much as I thought it was going to. Yet. True, yet. Um, nonetheless, uh, overall, I would say, yeah, I'm not going to check out more of uh, Barry Jenkins because I've seen everything, but I will certainly rewatch everything of his um, and check out what he has uh, still in store for me. So uh, very happy that I've seen his entire filmography now, uh, except for his shorts. I do need to get to those. All right. Well, that was, uh, I would argue three films of varying uh, degrees of challenge, but they weren't that challenging maybe mirror is a little bit challenging but i feel like in the second part of this episode we're going to get into a film that will elicit responses and i'm not entirely sure what they're all going to be it's by one of the most um polarizing directors without being problematic i would argue of all time uh peter greenway who i've been very eager to to start checking out his work and uh, all signs pointed towards the exact same feature the cook the thief his wife and her lover which has been on my radar for a very long time i've loved the score for a very long time a big fan of michael nyman but i never actually saw the film associated with the music now that i have i don't know if the music makes any more sense <laughs> who wants to start with this one this film was wild it was and i loved it the word i would use to describe it is lurid in the best possible way how would you uh, touch upon that point, the fact that it's lurid? Well, you know, there's the whole color scheme that's almost completely red. There's the behavior. There's the over-the-topness of a lot of the acting, Michael Gambon in particular. Guys, this is not Dumbledore. Um, <laughs> just, it was just, everything was so decadent and huge and over-the-top. And a lot of it was mean-spirited. But did you guys read the theory that it's all a giant allegory for Thatcherism? I didn't, but I absolutely had that in the back of my mind the whole time. So I didn't read it, but I felt it. Exactly. So I I won't go into all of it, but I thought it was very apropos. Uh, To try and explain this. uh, (laughs) So um, the title of the film does reflect, I wouldn't say all of the main characters, but I would say like at least most of them, because there are a couple that don't make the title, because I guess the title is already too long. Um, 
the thief is actually the the most central character I would say. And the thief is uh, the Michael Gannon character that that you brought up. He is somebody that um is a very awful criminal mastermind who treats everybody like dirt. He's misogynistic, homophobic, racist, just an awful person. He Domestic breaks everything. Violence. Yeah, exactly. He's like childish. He has tantrums. He breaks things. He hurts people. And he's got a wife uh, played by Helen Mirren uh, back when she was doing much more taboo fare like this, um, who actually has a secret lover, uh, as, you know, promised in the title, who's played by Alan Howard, who's uh, a Jewish. I think he's like a, what is he, an accountant or like a bookkeeper? Bookstore or something? Keeper. That's what it is. Okay. Um there's their love is secretly on the down low they you know they uh they run off to the loo or the you know the the freezer or the kitchen of this restaurant that the that the uh the thief the titular thief owns and he treats it like because he owns the place he owns the place and he breaks tables breaks plates whenever he feels like it and there's a head chef the cook of the of the film who um takes orders from him but also doesn't really want to anymore so we have all of these conflicting relationships and it all ends in chaos i i think it starts in chaos like the very first thing you see and <laughs> add this to the list of things that make me want to reconsider babylon because you know if i could critique babylon and say oh it starts with a well, actually, James, you've not seen it. It starts very grossly. Um, that's all I will say. This film is possibly even more gross with how it starts, yet I love it. So I don't know what that says. Um, maybe I'm watching I Babylon tomorrow, so now I'm a little worried. <laughs> you'll, you'll know exactly what I mean as soon as you see it. It's it's similarly gross. Um, but <laughs> this film is just unhinged from start to finish. Like, just pure violence nudity and sex um hatred dark comedy and everything in between and i do mean everything i can't say more without spoiling but get ready for um a vile meal let's just say yeah this film there's there's you're a certain individual if you like this film Uh like i like i'm the type of person who found happiness hilarious and i loved say so i'm like yep I don't have any problems with this movie. It was great. But on a technical level, this film is flawless from everything from the wardrobe to the set design, the lighting, the color palettes, the cinematography. Incredible. Yeah. Also started young Tim Roth. Yep. That was mm-hmm. fun. And the performances are pretty stellar. I'd say Gambin is the showiest, but they're all strong. If you're a fan of Gambin in this film, Rachel, I will only tell you this. Um, Gambin walked in this film so David Thewlis could run in naked. If you think that, like, this oh, I is. I want to see naked so bad. Oh my god, it's like one of the top performances I've ever seen. It's like kind of like this, but much less hateful. But the verbal diarrhea, which sounds so annoying yet insightful at the same time, like, Thewlis has it down perfectly and naked. But that's. that's also, Thewlis also went on to teach at Hogwarts. Oh, yeah, that's also true. It's the, <laughs> the, it's the number one criteria. Can you spew nonsense for 50 hours? Perfect. You could teach you could teach the wizards at Hogwarts. There you go. I have this ongoing theory that Harry Potter was just a jobs program for all the actors of Britain who needed new kitchens or were struggling to find work. I mean, that that's exactly what it looks like. And the ones who didn't show up, they just turned it down. That's all that it was. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
you know, we're talking about things that this reminded me of. Like, I don't know if this film reminded uh, either of you of a lot of things, but this film to me was like Stanley Kubrick at times with like the symmetrical static shots, uh, just full of so many things to look at. Uh, it also reminded me of um, Yogos Lanthimos, uh, which goes without saying. Oh, yeah. Like, especially like... Um, to an extent, the favorite, but more so, like, is even more screwed up stuff, I would say. Uh, which, going into the Greek territory, it also reminds me, and this is a little bit more of a me thing, because I don't know if either of you have even heard of this. Um, one of my favorite weird-ass Greek films is called Sweet Bunch by uh, Nikos Nikolaitis. Um, rest in peace. Uh, th- these films, Sweet Bunch and The Cook, The Thief, etc., are, like, so similar in aesthetic appeal. Like, it's... I feel like that might be a future smorgasbord pick because of it, but like this film is like so enriched in aesthetic glory. Like the Nyman score is perfect uh, in context, especially now. Like it's so contra- it's so contrasting. I feel like the uh, cinematography is some of the best I've ever seen as well. Something else I think I picked up on as well. Um, if uh, I feel like. Correct me if I'm wrong. Their costumes changed when they entered different rooms, correct? Like, they were yeah. the same outfits, but they changed colors to match. Like, the bathroom was white. The uh, restaurant was red, I think. The uh, kitchen was green, I think. So, like, if Michael Gammon's wearing, like, a black jacket or, like, a black blazer, a black tie, and had, like, a white shirt underneath in the bathroom, he would leave, head into the restaurant, and it would turn red. I don't. I don't think it was that. I think it was whatever. If there were characters happened to be in a room where they walked in, they were wearing something similar. But I could Same. be wrong. I was trying not to pay too much attention to that throughout the film because I was getting so wrapped up in the 10,000 things he was saying at any given second. But uh, I, there was something like I, I'm almost certain that the outfits were changing. Unless I'm going crazy. <laughs> no, that was a thing. Yeah. Oh, it was? Okay. So yeah, it was a good recommendation, I think. And I'm surprised none of us had ever seen it. And myself especially. I think it just got away from me. But like um, when we watched The Time of the Gypsies, uh, I've heavily died, I've, I've heavily explored uh, Costa Rica's filmography. I'm going to do the same with Peter Greenway. I'm like really interested. And I've heard a lot of good things of about like the Drothman's uh, contract, for instance. Um, quite a few films i've heard a lot of but like this is easily the film that people talk about the most the one that we would just watch so i feel like we started at the top and we'll see where we go from there but i'm liking what i saw already and i don't know what that says about me also the film is referenced in my year of dicks it's true which for the listeners at home that might not be aware that is an oscar nominated short for best animated short film so um, it's really good it's a yeah yeah. it was great because they because they like they they went to the theater and i saw it like at, uh, like on the sign and i was like oh that's our pick and it's funny because like because they i guess they were told that cool as ice that really lame vanilla ice film was playing but there was that in another movie and um they didn't want to see the one and they uh asked about the cook the thief um his wife and her lover and one of them was like i've seen it and then the the main girl looks at him and he's like he's like i'm cultured pam well, I guess now we are finally cultured because now we have seen it. So After what took us so years long? of podcasting. Oh, God. It should have been the first one. It should have been the first one. Sorry, guys. I don't know what I was thinking. 
All right. So uh, now we're getting to the part that I feel like we all get the most excited for, uh, recommending the next batch of films to one another. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, have one of us select a film that none of us have seen. I think it's a James pick this, tar- this time around. And we will have to watch it for the month of March. And additionally, uh, we're going to give each other random recommendations. But b- until, but before we do that, um, Rachel's got a bit of protocol to go through. That's right. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. And you're going to see a lot of Oscar content in the next few weeks. Whether you like it or not, but to to uh, to this point, uh, James has already professed that he's not really into the award scene. He just likes to talk about film, and that's what we're going to be doing. We're not necessarily saying that the Oscars are wonderful. They've got a lot of issues, but we want to just celebrate film in any which way that we can. And we will continue to do so right now. Who wants to find out what they're getting first? What am I recommending for you? Okay, so I'm... When we were first doing the smorgasbord, I was trying to like introduce you to a lot of classics or like art house things that you just have never seen. I'm trying to get a little bit more diligent when it comes to actually recommending maybe some indie stuff or stuff that's more that you know something that might be more in your area of study a little bit. So, how familiar with the works of John Cassavetes are you? John Cassavetes is a filmmaker that is like on my list, like. I need to watch his stuff. I just never make the time for it. Well, now you will have to. So um, for me, there are so many indie films and they're probably more appropriate for you to watch. But in the general sense, what's the first cast of any film to watch? There's only one answer. So uh, maybe down the road, you'll discover more of his or we can recommend more of his. But you have to start at the top, his greatest film with, and I am not, bluffing one of the greatest performances of all time from gina rollins his wife at the time uh, until until he died i believe um a woman under the influence one of the i was just about to ask if it was that oh yeah absolutely one of the top five greatest performances of all time um peter falk is brilliant it as well um this is a must if you're into indie cinema you have to watch john cassavetes at least some of his stuff you have to i'm super excited fantastic Alrighty, Rachel, uh, what am I getting? I'm guessing it's not going to be also John Cassavetes, right? Definitely not. So you kind of guessed partially right. Um, I I always have such a hard time finding films for you. But this one has been on my radar because there's been a lot of book banning and censorship going on. And so I thought you might enjoy Inherit the Wind with Spencer Tracy and Frederick March. Ooh, who's that by? Stanley Kramer. Who else? (laughs) I don't think I've seen so many films of his until this until this podcast. I feel like I've seen how many on the smorgasbord? I recommended Two? you one. It was on the beach. On the beach. Okay. I feel like I maybe saw something else of his for some other reason. Um, well, I came up with the idea because we were talking about one of the Oscar-nominated films today, and I compared it to Judgment at Nuremberg, and that's where I jumped from there. But I think it's a very relevant film, a very interesting film. And I saw Christopher Plummer perform it on Broadway, so I'm very biased. But, yeah. I completely forgot that you were fortunate enough to do that. That that must have been quite something. It was incredible, and I will always remember it. Okay, so Inherit the Wind. Um, I'm loving this poster. It looks like there's a chimpanzee on it. Please tell me that the, that the chimp has a very big part, or that there actually is a chimp. Uh, there is no chimp, but uh, we may ah. be descended from chimps, and that's part of the argument. 
Okay. Well, I'm seeing that this has some of his best reception that he's ever received in his career, Stanley Kramer. So, and I'm also a fan of Spencer Tracy, and I need to discover more uh, more of his works, uh, particularly ones not related to um, Catherine Hepburn. So, to see him kind of kind of do his own thing is also really nice too. Okay, so I guess that leaves me. Alrighty. So for you, I decided to pick a film that I really enjoy. Uh, it's by a director who unfortunately in recent years had some unsavory accusations against him and he ultimately died in 2020, which is like equally unfortunate. I'm giving oh. you a film by South Korean filmmaker Kim Ki-duk and it is his 2008 film Dream. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. I'm not going to say anything about what it's about. You just have to watch it. It is such a beautiful film. It's just, yeah, I had, uh, I think in my uncle recommended it to me and i was like i'll check it out and i watched it i was like this is amazing and then just kind of learning more about his career it's like he's a very critically acclaimed i haven't seen any of his other films yet but oh my god he's got a very what very well recepted that's cool i'm looking forward to this i've been meaning to check out more south korean cinema so his one film uh which is like the go-to one for everybody uh spring summer fall winter and spring is like one of the greatest films of the 2000s um also stars, I don't remember his name, but he's the the mastermind in Squid Game. That actor, he was in it as well. So, oh, oh, uh, oh uh, I believe his name is Oh Seong Yoon. That's yeah. That okay. That sounds yeah. I think that is him. Yep. So, um, I have actually not seen Dreams. So, listeners at home, we don't have to jump in on other people's picks, but I might just jump in on this one because you know what? I'd like to see more from this from this filmmaker. Sorry, it's Oh Seong Seong Yu. That's it. There we go. <laughs> cool. Alrighty, so James, uh, you've recommended Rachel her pick. Um, dare I ask what? That, that seems like a very reasonable pick from you. So, what are all of us watching? Because sometimes, sometimes we get some interesting stuff from you. <laughs> oh yeah, I was trying to figure out what I could torture you guys with this time. I know. <laughs> I, I I will say most of my picks because I planned out every single assignment that I'm doing for the year just to get it out of the way. And I think only like one or two are absolutely unhinged. Okay. I feel like I'm like very guilty of this actually. So I don't know why I'm blaming you. Like I feel like time of the gypsies, this, uh, the cook. Dude, I, I reckon, dude, I did Sergeant Kabuki, man. <laughs> yeah. I, you will never top Sergeant Kabuki, man. Yeah, except now that I say that I'm a little scared. <laughs> I also true. did disco dancer, which I will never be able to top that film. I love that one. But that was unhinged in the good way. That wasn't like, you know, cannibalism. Now, if you don't know which one we're referring to at home, uh, you'll have to watch all four of them and see. <laughs> all right. So for my pick, I decided to go with She Dies Tomorrow, written and directed by Amy Simons. Oh, okay. that's why you were bringing her up earlier. That, yeah, that's actually part of the reason. Um, yeah. And the synopsis that's on IMDb says Amy thinks she's dying tomorrow and it's contagious. Okay. I've heard of this one. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. It's also at a lean 86 minutes. Okay, perfect. I have never heard of this one, actually. Yeah, I remember, I don't remember how I, I stumbled upon it. it was like, I, I'm actually a big fan of Amy Simon, so I generally like, usually in the know when she does something. So, like, I found out about this. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll have to watch this eventually. And then, apparently it's a good film. It's, it's a film that kind of it kind of fits in with things that were going on during the pandemic. What I love though, is it's got like a 5.1 on IMDb, but an 80 on Metacritic to me, that's like, okay, all right. I, for some reason, gravitate towards stuff like this. So I'm excited. Yeah. 
Well, that's my pick for the collective this month. Cool. So well, I'm excited to see it. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess we're all going to. So I am uh, I am excited for that. Uh, for a quick recap for the listeners at home, um, we are going to be watching collectively. She dies tomorrow by Amy Simons. Uh, individually, um, if you want to join in, we've got Inherit the Wind, A Woman Under the Influence, and and Dream. So um i say this every time and i feel so like silly but like you can't get more varied than this so this really is a cinematic smorgasbord we craft the best movie marathons we do we do and you should hire us yes you should please dear listeners if you're in the nobody specific (laughs) if you're if you're uh if you're in the capacity to we would we would uh, enjoy the employment i'm sure Uh, so that was the k-cut we are now going into the alcohol